Picking back up on what we were talking about earlier, another question for us as we uh, approach the Word. What if you could rewrite a portion of history? What if, what if you could go back and, and rewrite something? There are different TV shows and movies that have people that travel back through time and and maybe if you could do that, you would try to affect the past so that the future is better. But what, what part of history would you rewrite? What part of your life would you redo? What part of this church's history would you like to have a do-over for? We always have this opportunity to evaluate where we are in relationship to the living Word, Jesus Christ, that came as the exact representation of the Father to live out before His Father all the things that we were called to but did not have the power to do so. What if we could redo a portion of our history so that now... It would be a far greater story. There are so many things in my life, brothers and sisters, and I'm sure in yours as well. If I could go back and just change that thing, I would. But you know, even through all of that, the redeeming grace of God is there for us. But I would go back and I would answer differently to some of the questions being presented before me as temptations come, as, as obstacles are put in my way as challenges are put before me and I set them aside, I would go back. And I'm sure you would recall things that you would do differently as well. This morning we're going to look at um, the first 12 verses of Mark 12. And we're going to see what Jesus has to say there uh, in this continual unfolding story of Him and the leaders of the people of Israel. So Mark 12, uh, at verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this in Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. May God give us uh, insight this morning as we consider these words. Jesus uh, is in this uh, dialogue, uh, ongoing dialogue with the leaders there. Uh, We saw that from the end of uh, chapter 11. Uh, We've seen it actually throughout uh, the Gospel of Mark where they keep questioning Him. They keep challenging Him. And they're they're not asking questions to learn from them. They want to trip him up. And so in this setting here, Jesus continues to expand the way he sees them. And he tells the parable of this vineyard. And so in our our, our review of this this morning, uh, we'll look at what would have been understood. And the first thing that we'll we'll look at is uh, in this parable, there was an arrangement that was made. There's something that would have been expected to happen in this story. Uh, in, the, in the parable that Jesus is telling, there's a natural way that people would have understood this. And this was a, uh, a familiar thing of that time where uh, people would come and work for somebody else. Well, we might know it as sharecroppers today. But there was a, there was a vineyard. And this was completely set up by the owner. It had all the best vines. He spared no expense when it came to planting the very best vines that would produce the very best grapes. He had it on the most fertile soil that could be found. This vineyard had all of the makings of a prosperous vineyard. Vines and soil. He he marked it off with a fence all the way around it. This is mine, he says. He cleared it of all of the debris that would hinder the growth of anything. He put a a wine press in it and a a vat to store the wines because this was going to be a fruitful vineyard. He had everything set up. He even erected a watchtower in it so that it would stay safe and it would be protected at all times. This was the owner's prized possession And he had everything set for the tenants. This is a reference, this vineyard, to the people of Israel. Uh, God the Father is the farmer. He's the landowner. He owns the vineyard. And Israel is the vineyard. Psalm 80, uh, verses 8 through 11 say, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. This was a luxurious vineyard that God has planted and took great care and time to do so. And he hired some Sharecroppers, as we might understand that. People that would, that would come in and for, a, for an exchanged rate of uh, goods 
based on what's produced. The owner would get a portion of it. The, the tenants would get a portion of that. And all of this arranged ahead of time. They get to enjoy the fruits of the vineyard that somebody else planted. It doesn't get any better than that. You work in the best place and somebody else has taken every measure to make sure that it is going to succeed. Love to have that kind of a job in today's world. It's a great setup. And he gives them plenty of time. He's not a harsh landowner. In the, in the early chapters of uh, Israel's history, back in the uh, Torah and Deuteronomy, it talks about uh, when you're planting a vineyard, you would wait probably four or five years before you would actually reap any of that. Because it needed some time. But at that time, it was ready and it was expected that the harvest would be there and you could then take that fruit and eat of it and live off of the produce of that vineyard. And so the landowner here is very generous, again, with his time, knowing that uh, it will do everything that he intended for it to do. Jesus, though, is... Uh, telling this story, and it's to the religious leaders of his day. This is probably still that Sanhedrin group where it's a mix of a few of the choice leaders of that time. And he's still speaking to them. And as soon as Jesus starts this parable, they recognize what he's saying. This wasn't a, a parable like some of the other parables that Jesus would tell. This one, as soon as he would start to speak it, their minds knew what he was saying and what he was referencing. This is not the, the first time that you hear of this kind of, of an arrangement where, where God would, would, would plant a vineyard and say, here, I want you to uh, faithfully take care of it for me. This already has happened back in the garden. It, it's... Is being referenced now to what happened 700 years before in the book of Isaiah, but the story goes back all the way to the garden. Remember that story? Genesis 2 says, And the Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The passage goes on to say, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden except one. But already back in the garden, as God had this perfect community set up, the kingdom was firmly established and everything was very good. Um, much like the description of this vineyard, everything was very good. And he said to the man, you are going to join me in the work. I'll give you a role in caring for this wonderful place that I've created. And so God and man worked side by side together in his kingdom and the man and the woman got all the benefits from that as long as they would faithfully work in the vineyard, in the garden, as it were, 
uh, under the Lord's direction. So the story is a familiar one. This is, this is the regular plan of God to have something perfectly set and then given to you and I to work in it. And his stuff, his plan would not fail. This is the, the arrangement that's there and it's, it's set before them in this parable now. But in the same way that Adam and Eve in the garden rebelled, there is a rebellion here that comes through in the story. The leaders are rebelling against God's plan to draw His people back. And He talks about the, 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 the tenants that were before, the tenants that were, were there and how they treated all those that were sent to go and reap some of the harvest, expecting, knowing that there's supposed to be a harvest there, as long as the tenants cared for the garden faithfully. He said, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, but they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, if you could do that in the day, under this normal arrangement of, of life, if you could withhold the, the proceeds to the owner, the owner has no proof that it's his. But if the, if the fruit is there and he shows that this is my fruit, this comes from my vineyard, his ownership remains. So every time he would send a servant there to collect on what was rightfully his, they were mistreated and some even killed. Jeremiah speaks of this judgment against them. Uh, Jeremiah 7 at 25, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. There's been this history in the people of Israel that even though God set them on a foolproof plan to follow His ways, they would change the course by their own rebellion. They were disobedient and they rejected all the prophets' call to come back into right relationship with the owner. Nehemiah, we went through Nehemiah a while back already. Nehemiah 9.26 says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Nehemiah at this closing stage of Israel's history before God goes silent reminds them that this was the history of them all along. They keep rejecting God's rule and reign in their lives and His plan for His people. And they treat the prophets shamefully. The climax of the story here comes when in the parable he says, I have, I have one more to send yet. After all the many people. And can you imagine, just for a moment, 
Imagine that you are one of the people in line to go and speak to the people of Israel. You are one of the prophets that God is going to send. And you know the history. Yeah, I heard about the first one. They beat him and they sent him away. I heard about some of them. They actually killed them. And you want me to go? He sends his son. Now, under normal circumstances, after all those many times, any normal prophet would say, I don't know that I want to do that. I know my fate and I know their outcome. It's not going to change anything. But he says, I'll send my son. They will respect him. And so Jesus, in this story, paints a picture of where the Pharisees, where the Sadducees, where the scribes, where the leaders of the people of Israel are at in their, in their walk before God. I'll send my son to them and I'll see how they react. And so they take the son, as the parable says, and they drag him away and they kill him and they throw him out of the vineyard and they say, it's ours now. We have removed everyone, including the beloved son, and the inheritance is ours. So what's the outcome? When, when, the, when the story is told, what happens? What happens to the vineyard? What happens to the, to the people that are called to care for the vineyard? And in this story, in this story, the judgment is not against the people of Israel. The judgment here is squarely on the shoulders of the leaders. They know that. There is no question. The story even says, well, they realized that he was telling the parable against them. They didn't have to wonder about that until he got to the end of the thing. They knew that from the time that Jesus opened his mouth to tell the parable because the, the parable comes from Isaiah's account. Isaiah 5. Look, listen to the first couple verses there. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. starts out wonderful. Let me tell you about the vineyard and my beloved son who is the rightful heir of it. Let me tell you about that. Now, if you and I heard that, uh, you would think, oh, this is going to be a good story. Listen to how it goes, though. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. Now as soon as Jesus started to tell the story of the vineyard, they knew they were in trouble. They knew that the outcome of what he was talking about was that the vineyard didn't produce as God had set it to produce. Something changed under their leadership. Said they, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, for you and me, maybe that's not such a big deal. I've eaten some, I don't know if they were technically wild grapes. We had wild grapes growing on our back fence uh, at one of our houses. When we were in Africa, there were, there were uh, this big old arbor and this tunnel, and it was just loaded with grapes. And I don't know if they were just wild that naturally came up or if they were planted. 
But I'm thinking, all right, so they're wild grapes. Uh, press them and make cheaper wine at least. That's not what they understood when they heard that though. We hear wild grapes. Let me tell you what they heard. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded worthless, stinky fruit. Now, try to sell that. Try to make a, a good bottle of grape juice or wine out of that. You can't. They're worthless. What, what God had planted there under the care of the leaders was not of any use anymore. They had destroyed his field and it has been now uh, overridden with useless, stinky grapes. The final outcome for the leaders is a total loss. Verse 9 of our text this morning, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. You know, God's plan doesn't end just because somebody messes it up because we wouldn't be here. If we were here today, we wouldn't be here tomorrow because we would mess it up yet today. But God is patient and steadfast and loving and kind and His purpose always prevails. And so even though this group of leaders that Jesus is talking to has, has missed the opportunity, that doesn't stop God's plan. I'll give it to somebody else. They will take it. And they will carry out and have that opportunity to carry out God's plan. The title of our message is called Misplaced Fear. That's the problem that, the, that these religious leaders had. They had this misplaced fear. Uh, when, we, when we looked at when Jesus' authority was questioned, they said, well, who gives you this authority? Where do you get the power to do these things? And Jesus masterfully turns the tables and says, you answer my question first. And you remember. The question was, did you recognize, paraphrasing, did you recognize the working of God in your midst or did you think it came from man? John's baptism. From heaven or from man? Well, we couldn't answer correctly because that would mean we should follow. But we don't want to answer our heart because we're afraid of the people. What if we actually said something like that? We would fear the repercussions of the people. And once again, the same thing happens. They were seeking to arrest Him, but they feared, they feared the wrong people. Their fear should have been squarely in God. Not afraid in that sense where He's going to do something, but we see that those that don't follow, that is the fear that overtakes them. But this fear of standing in holy awe before the Lord our God who plants a vineyard and allows us to take care of it. And it will be fruitful as we follow. But they feared the people. They couldn't kill him on a certain day because that would upset certain people. Everything that they did, it seemed, came out of fear. Misplaced fear. If their fear was the beginning of their wisdom, as Scripture says, they would have been in this wonderful place 
Psalm 128, which was also from this past week's reading, says, You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. I'll finish the sentence in a second. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. The leaders are about to do that. It's, it's, well, let me finish this first. Um, you shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Inasmuch as we continue to follow the covenant, faithful leading of our God and everything He has laid out for us and the promises that He has, you will be fruitful in what you do and it will go well for you. But the opening part of that says, uh, you will eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. Scripture would go on to say, you reap what you sow. And that's where the leaders are at at this point here. They are about to reap what they sow. They're going to eat the fruit of their hands instead of continually faithfully in the work that God had given them to do, uh, being leaders of His people. They, they kept operating out of this place of fear, a misplaced fear. At Pentecost, Jesus said in Acts 1 verse 8, But you will receive, not fear, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. As Jesus is leaving His disciples, He empowers them to carry out the mission of the church He just created. It's the mission that the Father had started already back in the garden. It's the mission that Moses and the, the, and the uh, prophets had carried out, the kings were supposed to do in all these years before all this. You will receive power to carry on the work, the mission of reaching to those that need to hear the good news. Uh, reaching out in love, making sure that people know that we care about them. Not just now, not just in the temporary, not just some of their uh, issues that they have, but we care for where they're going to end up. That's why Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to the work that we have to do in God's kingdom, fear has no place in it. It will set us back step by step by step undoing what God has for us. But He gave us a spirit of power to love others. And we have that opportunity set before us. Every church in every generation has the choice of living in fear, which is something that comes out of selfishness. Only looking at my own interest. Fear, fear has to do with not trusting God. We operate from a place of fear because I have forgotten the absolute true promises of God and I look only to within what I think might happen or what it might be. It comes from this place of a selfishness, a looking inwardly. Or you have the opportunity, as does every generation of believers, of living and operating with the power of the Holy Spirit leading us. What if? Go back to that question. What if? 
What if we made that our commitment today? What if today we made the commitment, and not hopefully for the first time, but renew our commitment to live by the power of God working in us on the pathway that He has set us in with the harvest that is ready to be revealed to us that we get to participate in. We are not just seed planters and waterers and stand back. We get to gather the harvest. What if that were our commitment? To live our lives as individuals and a body of, as a body of believers here in Over Isil by the power that would never fail us. Imagine the things that God could do in you and through you, in us and through us. That's our challenge today. Let's pray. Father, as we consider these words, and again, our Savior doesn't mix His words. Even when He speaks in parables, He spoke plainly to the leaders. They did not misunderstand Him at all. Sometimes, Father, that word, even as it reaches our ears, uh, hits us hard. And, and to be honest, Father, we would just as soon forget sometimes the things that we hear from Your Word because it leaves us in a more comfortable place. We are a people of comfort here in this land, in this place, in this village. We like what is comfortable and to that end, Father, we, we confess that there have been times where we tried to uh, live within our own perspective and not within Yours. And maybe this ringing in the ears of the leaders of that day would ring in our ears today and we would have to come to grips with what will we do today with what we heard. Will we dismiss it somehow? Would we, would we come from this place of fear because it would mean something is going to be radically different if we followed you the way you would ask us to? So Father, forgive us when we have missed the mark and continue, continue to be patient with us as we seek to renew our commitment to that unending mission that started so long ago, to be in your kingdom and to care for it and to bring about uh, hand in hand with you by the power that is living within us, that the spirit of yours that moves us to bring about this kingdom that will one day come in its fullness. So where we have fallen short, forgive us. Uh, where we have committed ourselves, where, where that's already in the minds of the people here today, Father, strengthen us. And don't let the enemy knock us off course any longer. So today, Father, as we respond to Your Word, we commit ourselves to Your mission, Your vision, Your purpose, your kingdom, 
the outcome that you would have, the, the one that you allow us to participate. We commit ourselves to you once again today. We pray that you would find us faithful in that. And with that, confession and commitment, all God's people said, Amen.